3.30, the end of Age of Innocence. Welcome to Craftlet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 330, Newness. This episode brought to you by Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter delivered to your mailbox, bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. And links to all of our sponsors can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. Please visit them as their support for the show is one of the things that keeps it free for you. Well, hello. I hope you had a marvelous new year. I hope you had happy holidays. I hope you have been enjoying yourself and relaxing. And I hope your kids are going back to school on Monday. Because <laughs> I'm sure that by now, I'm hoping the same thing too. Well, after Newland's punishing knockout blow by May last week, you may be thinking, well, where is there to go? Well, there's only one place to go, and that's the future. Much like the last book of Harry Potter, where you jump ahead in time, Edith Wharton did that too. And first, I might add, at least before, not first, but before J.K. Rowling did it. Uh, today's chapter is, I don't want to say melancholy, that's probably because I'm now officially middle-aged, but it's uh, it's certainly sobering to jump ahead pretty far in time and be in a position where one can look back on one's life and see what one has and has not accomplished. We continue to stay narratively with Newland, as we have pretty much throughout the book. And uh, and there, there are only a couple of things to know. Uh, one one of the governors of New York was Teddy Roosevelt. You will hear a reference to a governor. That would be Teddy Roosevelt. And that should make you smile. Especially, and I think I've mentioned this before, maybe even during this book, uh, especially if you read The Alienist. Um, there's a very, very brief scene in here, but you'll go, oh, right. That's right around the right time. Got it. And uh, and so that's kind of nice. But really, I think... I think this is one of those chapters that you're going to want to listen to twice. The tone is, I found it very curious my first time through. And then I listened to it again, and then again, and then I read it. And, uh, and we'll have to talk about it after you've listened. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the chapter as well on the show notes and on the Ravelry groups, uh, because it's, it is perhaps not the ending you were expecting. And on that note, I will hand you over to the final chapter of The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton.
Chapter 34 Newland Archer sat at the writing table in his library in East 39th Street. He had just got back from a big official reception for the inauguration of the new galleries at the Metropolitan Museum, and the spectacle of those great spaces, crowded with the spoils of the ages, where the throng of fashion circulated through a series of scientifically catalogued treasures, had suddenly pressed on a rusted spring of memory. Why, this used to be one of the old Cessnola rooms, he heard someone say. And instantly, everything about him vanished, and he was sitting alone on a hard leather divan against a radiator, while a slight figure in a long sealskin cloak moved away down the meagerly fitted vista of the old museum. The vision had roused a host of other associations, and he sat looking with new eyes at the library which, for over thirty years, had been the scene of his solitary musings and of all the family confabulations. It was the room in which most of the real things of his life had happened. There his wife, nearly twenty-six years ago, had broken to him with a blushing circumlocution that would have caused the young women of the new generation to smile, the news that she was to have a child. And there their eldest boy, Dallas, too delicate to be taken to church in midwinter, had been christened by their old friend, the Bishop of New York, the ample, magnificent, irreplaceable bishop, so long the pride and ornament of his diocese. There Dallas had first staggered across the floor shouting, Dad! while May and the nurse laughed behind the door. There their second child, Mary, who was so like her mother, had announced her engagement to the dullest and most reliable of Reggie Chivers's many sons. And there Archer had kissed her through her wedding veil before they went down to the motor, which was to carry them to Grace Church. For in a world where all else had reeled on its foundations, the Grace Church wedding remained an unchanged institution. It was in the library that he and May always discussed the future of their children. The studies of Dallas and his young brother Bill, Mary's incurable indifference to accomplishments and passion for sport and philanthropy, and the vague leanings toward art, which had finally landed the restless and curious Dallas in the office of a rising New York architect. The young men nowadays were emancipating themselves from the law and business and taking up all sorts of new things. If they were not absorbed in state politics or municipal reform, the chances were that they were going in for Central American archaeology, for architecture or landscape engineering, taking a keen and learned interest in the pre-revolutionary buildings of their own country, studying and adapting Georgian types, and protesting at the meaningless use of the word colonial. Nobody nowadays had colonial houses, 
except the millionaire grocers of the suburbs. But above all, sometimes Archer put it above all, it was in that library that the governor of New York, coming down from Albany one evening to dine and spend the night, had turned to his host and said, banging his clenched fist on the table and gnashing his eyeglasses, Hang the professional politician. You're the kind of man the country wants, Archer. If the stable's ever to be cleaned out, men like you have got to lend a hand in the cleaning. Men like you. How Archer had glowed at the phrase. How eagerly he had risen up to the call. It was an echo of Ned Winsett's old appeal to roll his sleeves up and get down into the muck, but spoken by a man who set the example of the gesture, and whose summons to follow him was irresistible. Archer, as he looked back, was not sure that men like himself were what the country needed, at least in the active service to which Theodore Roosevelt had pointed. In fact, there was reason to think it did not, for after a year in the State Assembly he had not been re-elected, and had dropped back, thankfully, into obscure, if useful, municipal work. And from that again to the writing of occasional articles in one of the reforming weeklies that were trying to shake the country out of its apathy. It was little enough to look back on, but when he remembered to what the young men of his generation and set had looked forward, the narrow groove of money-making, sport, and society, to which their vision had been limited, even his small contribution to the new state of things seemed to count, as each brick counts in a well-built wall. He had done little in public life. He would always be by nature a contemplative, and a dilettante. But he had had high things to contemplate, great things to delight in, and one great man's friendship to be his strength and pride. He had been, in short, what people were beginning to call a good citizen. In New York, for many years past, every new movement philanthropic, municipal, or artistic, had taken account of his opinion and wanted his name. People said, Ask Archer, when there was a question of starting the first school for crippled children, reorganizing the Museum of Art, founding the Grolier Club, inaugurating the new library, or getting up a new society of chamber music. His days were full, and they were filled decently. He supposed it was all a man ought to ask. Something he knew he had missed. The flower of life. But he thought of it now as a thing so unattainable and improbable that to have repined would have been like despairing because one had not drawn the first prize in a lottery. There were a hundred million tickets in his lottery, and there was only one prize— the chances had been too decidedly against him. When he thought of Ellen Olenska, it was abstractly, serenely, as one might think of some imaginary beloved in a book 
or a picture. She had become the composite vision of all that he had missed. That vision, faint and tenuous as it was, had kept him from thinking of other women. He had been what was called a faithful husband. And when May had suddenly died, carried off by the infectious pneumonia through which she had nursed their youngest child, he had honestly mourned her. Their long years together had shown him that it did not so much matter if marriage was a dull duty, as long as it kept the dignity of a duty. Lapsing from that, it became a mere battle of ugly appetites. Looking about him, he honored his own past and mourned for it. After all, there was good in the old ways. His eyes making the round of the room, done over by Dallas with English mezzotints, Chippendale cabinets, bits of chosen blue and white and pleasantly shaded electric lamps, came back to the old East Lake writing table that he had never been willing to banish, and to his first photograph of May, which still kept its place beside his inkstand. There she was, tall, round-bosomed and willowy, in her starched muslin and flapping leghorn, as he had seen her under the orange trees in the mission garden. And as he had seen her that day, so she had remained. Never quite at the same height, yet never far below it, generous, faithful, unwearied, but so lacking in imagination, so incapable of growth, that the world of her youth had fallen into pieces and rebuilt itself, without her ever being conscious of the change. This hard, bright blindness had kept her immediate horizon apparently unaltered. Her incapacity to recognize change made her children conceal their views from her as Archer concealed his. There had been, from the first, a joint pretense of sameness, a kind of innocent family hypocrisy in which father and children had unconsciously collaborated. And she had died, thinking the world a good place, full of loving and harmonious households like her own, and resigned to leave it because she was convinced that, whatever happened, Newland would continue to inculcate in Dallas the same principles and prejudices which had shaped his parents' lives, and that Dallas, in turn, when Newland followed her, would transmit the sacred trust to little Bill. And of Mary, she was sure as of her own self. So, having snatched little Bill from the grave and given her life in the effort, she went contentedly to her place in the Archer Vault in St. Mark's, where Mrs. Archer already lay safe from the terrifying trend of which her daughter-in-law had never even become aware of. Opposite May's Portrait stood one of her daughter. Mary Chivers was as tall and fair as her mother, but large-waisted, flat-chested and slightly slouching, as the altered fashion required. 
Mary Chivers's mighty feats of athleticism could not have been performed with the twenty-inch waist that May Archer's azure sash so easily spanned. And the difference seemed symbolic. The mother's life had been as closely girt as her figure. Mary, who was no less conventional and no more intelligent, yet led a larger life and held more tolerant views. There was good in the new order, too. The telephone clicked, and Archer, turning from the photographs, unhooked the transmitter at his elbow. How far they were from the days when the legs of the brass-buttoned messenger boy had been New York's only means of quick communication. Chicago wants you. Ah, it must be a long distance from Dallas, who had been sent to Chicago by his firm to talk over the plan of the lakeside palace they were to build for a young millionaire with ideas. The firm always sent Dallas on such errands. Hello, Dad. Yes, Dallas. I say, how do you feel about sailing on Wednesday? Mauritania. Yes, next Wednesday, as ever is. Our client wants me to look at some Italian gardens before we settle anything and has asked me to nip over on the next boat. I've got to be back on the 1st of June. The voice broke into a joyful, conscious laugh. So we must look alive. I say, Dad, I want your help. Do come. Dallas seemed to be speaking in the room. The voice was as nearby and natural as if he had been lounging in his favorite armchair by the fire. The fact would not ordinarily have surprised Archer for long-distance telephoning had become as much a matter of course as electric lighting and five-day Atlantic voyages. But the laugh did startle him. It still seemed wonderful that across all those miles and miles of country, forest, river, mountain, prairie, roaring cities, and busy in different millions, Dallas's laugh should be able to say, Of course, Whatever happens, I must get back on the first, because Fanny Beaufort and I are to be married on the fifth. The voice began again. Think it over. No, sir, not a minute. You've got to say yes now. If you can allege a single reason, no, I knew it. But it's a go, eh? Because I count on you to ring up the Cunard office first thing tomorrow morning. And you'd better book a return on a boat from Marseille. I say, Dad, it'll be our last time together— in this kind of way. Oh, good, I knew you would. Chicago rang off, and Archer rose and began to pace up and down the room. It would be their last time together, in this kind of way. The boy was right. They would have lots of other times. After Dallas's marriage, his father was sure, for the two were born comrades, and Fanny Beaufort, whatever one might think of her, did not seem likely to interfere with their intimacy. On the contrary, from what he had seen of her, he thought she would be naturally included in it. Still, change was change, and differences were differences, and much as he felt himself drawn towards his future daughter-in-law, it was tempting to seize this last chance of being alone with his boy. There was no reason why he should not seize it, except the profound one that he had lost the habit of travel. May had disliked to move, except for valid reasons, such as taking the children to the sea or in the mountains. 
she could imagine no other motive for leaving the house in Thirty-Ninth Street or their comfortable quarters at the Wellens in Newport. After Dallas had taken his degree, she had thought it her duty to travel for six months, and the whole family had made the old-fashioned tour through England, Switzerland, and Italy. Their time being limited, no one knew why, they had omitted France. Archer remembered Dallas's wrath at being asked to contemplate Mont Blanc instead of Reims. But Mary and Bill wanted mountain climbing, and had already yawned their way in Dallas's wake through the English cathedrals. And May, always fair to her children, had insisted on holding the balance evenly between their athletic and artistic proclivities. She had indeed proposed that her husband should go to Paris for a fortnight and join them on the Italian lakes after they had done Switzerland. But Archer had declined. We'll stick together, he said, and May's face had brightened at his setting such a good example to Dallas. Since her death, nearly two years before, there had been no reason for his continuing in the same routine. His children had urged him to travel. Mary Chivers had felt sure it would do him good to go abroad and see the galleries. The very mysteriousness of such a cure made her the more confident of its efficacy. But Archer had found himself held fast by habit, by memories, by a sudden startled shrinking from new things. Now, as he reviewed his past, he saw into what a deep rut he had sunk. The worst of doing one's duty was that it apparently unfitted one for doing anything else. At least, that was the view that the men of his generation had taken. The trenchant divisions between right and wrong, honest and dishonest, respectable and the reverse, had left so little scope for the unforeseen. There are moments when a man's imagination, so easily subdued to what it lives in, suddenly rises above its daily level and surveys the long windings of destiny. Archer hung there and wondered. What was left of the little world he had grown up in, and whose standards had bent and bound him? He remembered a sneering prophecy of poor Lawrence Lefferts, uttered years ago in that very room. If things go on at this rate, our children will be marrying Beaufort's bastards. It was just what Archer's eldest son, the pride of his life, was doing, and nobody wondered or reproved. Even the boy's Aunt Janie, who still looked so exactly as she used to, in her elderly youth, had taken her mother's emeralds and seed pearls out of their pink cotton wool and carried them with her own twitching hands to the future bride. And Fanny Beaufort, instead of looking disappointed at not receiving a set from a Paris jeweler, had exclaimed at their old-fashioned beauty and declared that when she wore them she should feel like an Isabelle miniature. Fanny Beaufort, who had appeared in New York at eighteen, after the death of her parents, had won its heart 
much as Madame Olenska had won it thirty years earlier. Only instead of being distrustful and afraid of her, society took her joyfully for granted. She was pretty, amusing, and accomplished. What more did anyone want? Nobody was narrow-minded enough to rake up against her the half-forgotten facets of her father's past and her own origin. Only the older people remembered so obscure an incident in the business life of New York as Beaufort's failure, or the fact that after his wife's death he had been quietly married to the notorious Fanny Ring and had left the country with his new wife and a little girl who inherited her beauty. He was subsequently heard of in Constantinople, then in Russia, and a dozen years later American travelers were handsomely entertained by him in Buenos Aires, where he represented a large insurance agency. He and his wife died there, in an odor of prosperity, and one day their orphan daughter had appeared in New York in charge of May Archer's sister-in-law, Mrs. Jack Welland, whose husband had been appointed the girl's guardian. The fact threw her into almost cousinly relationship with Newland Archer's children, and nobody was surprised when Dallas's engagement was announced. Nothing could more clearly give the measure of the distance that the world had traveled. People nowadays were too busy, busy with reforms and movements, with fads and fetishes and frivolities, to bother much about their neighbors. And of what account was anybody's past in the huge kaleidoscope where all the social atoms spun around on the same plane? Newland Archer, looking out of his hotel window at the stately gaiety of the Paris streets, felt his heart beating with the confusion and eagerness of youth. It was long since it had thus plunged and reared under his widening waistcoat, leaving him the next minute with an empty breast and hot temples. He wondered if it was thus that his sons conducted itself in the presence of Miss Fanny Beaufort, and decided that it was not. It functions as actively, no doubt, but the rhythm is different, he reflected, recalling the cool composure with which the young man had announced his engagement, and taken for granted that his family would approve. The difference is that these young people take it for granted that they're going to get whatever they want, and that we almost took it for granted that we shouldn't. Only, I wonder, the thing one's so certain of in advance, can it ever make one's heart beat as wildly? It was the day after their arrival in Paris, and the spring sunshine held Archer in his open window, above the wide, silvery prospect of Place Vendôme. One of the things he had stipulated, almost the only one, when he had agreed to come abroad with Dallas, was that in Paris he shouldn't be made to go to one of the newfangled palaces. Oh, all right, of course, Dallas good-naturedly agreed. I'll take you to some jolly old-fashioned place, the Bristol, say, leaving his father speechless at hearing that the century-long home of kings and emperors 
was now spoken of as an old-fashioned inn, where one went for its quaint inconveniences and lingering local color. Archer had pictured often enough, in the first impatient years, the scene of his return to Paris. Then the personal vision had faded, and he had simply tried to see the city as the setting of Madame Olenska's life, sitting alone at night, in his library, after the household had gone to bed, he had evoked the radiant outbreak of spring down the avenues of horse-chestnuts, the flowers and statues in the public gardens, the whiff of lilacs from the flower-carts, the majestic roll of the river under the great bridges, and the life of art and study and pleasure that filled each mighty artery to bursting. Now the spectacle was before him in its glory, and as he looked out on it he felt shy, old-fashioned, inadequate, a mere gray speck of a man compared with the ruthless, magnificent fellow he had dreamed of being. Dallas's hand came down cheerily on his shoulder. Hello, Father, this is something like it, isn't it? They stood for a while, looking out in silence, and the young man continued, Oh, by the way, I've got a message for you. The Countess Olenska expects us both at half-past five. He said it lightly, carelessly, as he might have imparted any casual item of information, such as the hour at which their train was to leave for Florence the next evening. Archer looked at him, and thought he saw in his gay young eyes a gleam of his great-grandmother Mingott's malice. Oh, didn't I tell you, Dallas pursued. Fanny made me swear to do three things while I was in Paris. Get her the score of the latest Debussy songs. Go to the Grand Guignol and see Madame Olenska. You know, she was awfully good to Fanny when Mr. Beaufort sent her over from Buenos Aires to the Assumption. Fanny hadn't any friends in Paris, and Madame Olenska used to be kind to her and trot her about on holidays. I believe she was a great friend of the first Mrs. Beaufort's. And she's our cousin, of course. So I rang her up this morning, before I went out, and told her you and I were here for two days and wanted to see her. Archer continued to stare at him. You told her I was here. Of course, why not? Dallas's eyebrows went up whimsically. Then, getting no answer, he slipped his arm through his father's with a confidential pressure. I say, father, what was she like? Archer felt his color rise under his son's unabashed gaze. Wasn't she most awfully lovely? Lovely? I don't know. She was different. Ah, there you have it. That's what it always comes to, doesn't it? When she comes, she's different, and one doesn't know why. It's exactly what I feel about Fanny. His father drew back a step, releasing his arm. About Fanny? But, my dear fellow, I should hope so. Only I don't see... Dash it, Dad, don't be prehistoric. Wasn't she once your Fanny? Dallas belonged body and soul to the new generation. He was the firstborn of Newland and May Archer, yet it had never been possible to inculcate in him even the rudiments of reserve. What's the use of making mysteries? It only makes people want to nose them out. 
he always objected when enjoined to discretion. But Archer, meeting his eyes, saw the filial light under their banter. My Fanny. Well, the woman you'd have chucked everything for, only you didn't, continued his surprising son. I didn't, echoed Archer with a kind of solemnity. No, you date, you see, dear old boy, but mother said, your mother. Yes, the day before she died. It was when she sent for me alone, you remember. She said she knew we were safe with you and always would be, because once, when she asked you to, you'd given up the thing you most wanted. Archer received this strange communication in silence. His eyes remained unseeingly fixed on the thronged, sunlit square below the window. At length, he said in a low voice, She never asked me. No, I forgot. You never did ask each other anything, did you? And you never told each other anything. You just sat and watched each other and guessed at what was going on underneath. A deaf and dumb asylum, in fact. Well, I back your generation for knowing more about each other's private thoughts than we ever have time to find out about our own. I say, Dad, Dallas broke off, you're not angry with me. If you are, let's make it up and go to lunch at Henri's. I've got to rush out to Versailles afterwards. Archer did not accompany his son to Versailles. He preferred to spend the afternoon in solitary roamings through Paris. He had to deal all at once with the packed regrets and stifled memories of an inarticulate lifetime. After a little while, he did not regret Dallas's indiscretion. It seemed to take an iron band from his heart to know that, after all, someone had guessed and pitied, and that it should have been his wife moved him indescribably. Dallas, for all his affectionate insight, would not have understood that. To the boy, no doubt, the episode was only a pathetic instance of vain frustration, of wasted forces. But was it really no more? For a long time, Archer sat on a bench in the Champs-Élysées and wondered while the stream of life rolled by. A few streets away, a few hours away, Ellen Olenska waited. She had never gone back to her husband, and when he had died some years before, she had made no change in her way of living. There was nothing now to keep her and Archer apart, and that afternoon he was to see her. He got up and walked across the Place de la Concorde and the Tuileries Gardens to Louvre. She had once told him that she often went there, and he had a fancy to spend the intervening time in a place where he could think of her as perhaps having lately been. For an hour or more he wandered from gallery to gallery through the dazzle of afternoon light, and one by one the pictures burst on him in their half-forgotten splendor, filling his soul with the long echoes of beauty. After all, his life had been too starved. Suddenly, before an effulgent Titian, 
he found himself saying, But I'm only fifty-seven. And then he turned away. For such summer dreams it was too late, but surely not, for a quiet harvest of friendship, of comradeship in the blessed hush of her nearness. He went back to the hotel where he and Dallas were to meet, and together they walked again across the Place de la Concorde and over the bridge that leads to the Chambre la Députée. Dallas, unconscious of what was going on in his father's mind, was talking excitedly and abundantly of Versailles. He had had but one previous glimpse of it, during a holiday trip in which he had tried to pack all the sights he had been deprived of when he had had to go with the family to Switzerland, and tumultuous enthusiasm and cocksure criticism tripped each other up on his lips. As Archer listened, his sense of inadequacy and inexpressiveness increased. The boy was not insensitive, he knew, but he had the facility and self-confidence that came of looking at fate not as a master, but as an equal. That's it. They feel equal to things. They know their way about, he mused, thinking of his son as the spokesman of a new generation, which had swept away all the old landmarks, and with them the signposts and the danger signal. Suddenly Dallas stopped short, grasping his father's arm. Oh, by Jove, he exclaimed. They had come out into the great tree-planted space before the invalade. The dome of Mansart floated ethereally above the budding trees and the long gray front of the building, drawing up into itself all the rays of afternoon light that hung there like a visible symbol of the race's glory. Archer knew that Madame Olenska lived in a square near one of the avenues radiating from the Invalade, and he had pictured the quarter as quiet and almost obscure, forgetting the central splendor that lit it up. Now, by some queer process of association, that golden light became for him the pervading illumination in which she lived. For nearly thirty years, her life, of which he knew so strangely little, had been spent in this rich atmosphere that he already felt to be too dense and yet too stimulating for his lungs. He thought of the theaters she must have been to, the pictures she must have looked at, the sober and splendid old houses she must have frequented, the people she must have talked with, the incessant stir of ideas, curiosities, images, and associations thrown out by an intensely social race in a setting of immemorial manners. And suddenly he remembered the young Frenchman, who had once said to him, Ah, good conversation. There is nothing like it, is there? Archer had not seen Monsieur Riviere or heard of him for nearly thirty years, and that fact gave the measure of his ignorance of Madame Olenska's existence. More than half a lifetime divided them, and she had spent the long interval among people he did not know, in a society he but faintly guessed at, 
in conditions he would never wholly understand. During that time, he had been living with his youthful memory of her, but she had doubtless had other and more tangible companionship. Perhaps she, too, had kept her memory of him as something apart. But if she had, it must have been like a relic in a small, dim chapel, where there was no time to pray every day. They had crossed the Place des Invalades and were walking down one of the thoroughfares flanking the building. It was a quiet quarter, after all, in spite of its splendor and its history, and the fact gave one an idea of the riches Paris had to draw on, since scenes such as this were left to the few and the indifferent. The day was fading into a soft, sun-shot haze, pricked here and there by a yellow electric light, and passers were rare in the little square into which they had turned. Dallas stopped again and looked up. It must be here, he said, slipping his arm through his father's, with a movement from which Archer's shyness did not shrink, and they stood together, looking up at the house. It was a modern building, without distinctive character, but many-windowed and pleasantly balconied up its wide, cream-colored front. On one of the upper balconies, which hung well above the rounded tops of the horse-chestnuts in the square, the awnings were still lowered, as though the sun had just left it. I wonder which floor, Dallas conjectured, and moving towards the porte-cochere, he put his head inside the porter's lodge and came back to say, The fifth. It must be the one with the awnings. Archer remained motionless, gazing at the upper windows as if the end of their pilgrimage had been attained. I say, you know, it's nearly six, his son at length reminded him. The father glanced away at an empty bench under the trees. I believe I'll sit there a moment, he said. Why, aren't you well? his son exclaimed. Oh, perfectly. But I should like you, please, to go up without me. Dallas paused before him, visibly bewildered. But I say, Dad, do you mean you won't come up at all? I don't know, said Archer slowly. If you don't, she won't understand. Go, my boy, perhaps I shall follow you. Dallas gave him a long look through the twilight. But what on earth shall I say? My dear fellow, don't you always know what to say, his father rejoined with a smile. Very well, I shall say you're old-fashioned and prefer walking up the five flights because you don't like lifts. His father smiled again. Say I'm old-fashioned. That's enough. Dallas looked at him again and then, with an incredulous gesture, passed out of sight under the vaulted doorway. Archer sat down on the bench and continued to gaze at the awninged balcony. He calculated the time it would take his son to be carried up in a lift on the fifth floor, to ring the bell and be admitted to the hall, and then ushered into the drawing room. 
He pictured Dallas entering that room, with his quick, assured step and high, delightful smile, and wondered if the people were right who said that his boy took after him. Then he tried to see the persons already in the room, for probably at that sociable hour there would be more than one, and among them a dark lady, pale and dark, who would look up quickly, half rise and hold out a long, thin hand with three rings on it. He thought she would be sitting in a sofa corner near the fire, with azaleas banked behind her on a table. It's more real to me here than if I went up, he suddenly heard himself say. And the fear, lest that last shadow of reality should lose its edge, kept him rooted to his seat as the minutes succeeded each other. He sat for a long time on the bench in the thickening dusk, his eyes never turning from the balcony. At length a light shone through the windows, and a moment later a manservant came out on the balcony, drew up the awnings, and closed the shutters. At that, as if it had been the signal he waited for, Newland Archer got up slowly and walked back alone to his hotel. The End Is that what you expected? It wasn't what I had expected. And yet, I can't help feeling that it was the right ending. The world has changed so much, and Newland, while, while participating in the world, he has a telephone, he has electric lights, he's let his kids modernize his world, he travels uh, so speedily across the Atlantic in five days. He, he's certainly not withdrawn from the world, he's been participating in the world, he continues to participate in the world even after May's death. He doesn't seem overly sad. He seems to have enjoyed his children and raising his children and being part of the the world that he was allowed to participate in uh, as a man of his, his station and his uh, financial level in life. Um, he doesn't seem to have been missing anything until this moment when he he can look up at Alan's apartment. And then only after the shutters are closed and the awnings are drawn up does he turn and leave. As that that last opportunity to see what that life could have been is rolled up and closed down without him doing anything. Because he's been very passive all the way through. Then he can go home. Is it about being stuck? Is it about uh, the the life that we are born into is the only life we can lead? Is it about the ways that society and, and social constraints can frustrate dreams? I, I think it touches on all of those things. I, although, I also think it's kind of curious because it, 
it feels to me very much like those last two or three paragraphs of The Great Gatsby. The, and so we beat on boats against current, that section. The um, fresh green breast of the new world, that, that whole section of, of uh, The End of The Great Gatsby carries the same tone. And it shouldn't surprise me because the books were written within, what, five years of each other? In fact, Fitzgerald was probably working on Gatsby when Edith Wharton was publishing this. And um, and there's that same kind of post-war glaze to the whole thing. It's it's no joke that the, the world that Ellen and May had inhabited has been uh, plowed up and trod upon by the many, many dead in, in Flanders fields and elsewhere. And, uh, and there's, there's no going back at that point. So there was, there was certainly that layer of sentiment, I think, that we can identify in, in Edith Wharton's story. There's also her frustrations as a human, uh, being unhappily married and then having a, uh, difficult affair and, uh, and leaving New York, leaving the United States and, and not playing the reindeer games <laughs> in, in New York society any longer. Uh, and yet I, I find it difficult to feel that Newland regrets anything. And I'm, I, I find that curious. Our, uh, our very modern our post-1960s world, uh, anyone who is thwarted from getting what they want, uh, that's tragic. And um, it is the, the grounds for tragedy, the basis for, for modern tragedy. It's, you know, there's, you have this desire, you have this thing you want to be or this thing you want to do, and you are thwarted from doing it. And therefore, that is a tragedy, certainly not in any kind of Greek sense, but in a, a, a modern sense. And, uh, that's not this world at all. And in fact, honestly, I mean, that isn't the world I think most of us live in, right? There are hundreds of things I'm sure all of you have wanted to do, dreamt of doing, uh, spent your your young adulthood dreaming of doing or being, and then stuff happens. You have kids, you get married, you get married, you have kids, you uh, you get a job, you move to a city, and you're stuck there. I've, I joke that I was trapped in Los Angeles for 10 years. I didn't want to live there anymore. But, you know, you get used to things, and you're in a job, and in a place, and you have friends, and it's so hard to change. And so, you know, suddenly 35 years have gone by, and oh my gosh, I'm still here. I didn't get stuck that long because luckily I got to move to New York to be with my husband, which was marvelous. But I can easily see how if that hadn't happened, I would still be there and probably not podcasting. You know, my life would have been completely different. And uh, the, oh, what was that movie? Sliding Doors, I think. Gwyneth Paltrow? Is that the one I'm thinking of? I think that's the one I'm thinking of. But that, that idea that, you know, these momentary changes, these little things that do or do not happen change everything. And, uh, yeah, Newland, 
and Ellen. And there it is. But Newland's kids seem happy. Newland's son is marrying one of Beaufort's bastards. Which, wow, deep and abiding irony on that one. His daughter marrying the dullest of the Reggie Chivers' kids. Uh, All of that. It's just that, wow, complete unpredictability of the future and how things pan out. And how much happier his children seem. And freer. And yet raised by very conservative, very traditional parents who loved them, clearly, very much. So, interesting ending, no? I hope you enjoyed it. I know it's been, uh, it's been a bit of a slog for some of you. I've watched the numbers go up and down, but, uh, but I hope you feel rewarded here at the end for having made it all the way through. And I really hope you are looking forward to listening to North and South with me, as our next book on Craftlet. That will begin the first week of February 2014 on the Craftlet feed. So if you have been listening to just the books, you will have to switch over to Craftlet. If you have a smartphone, the Craftlet app is free or a tablet. Works on Android tablets, Windows phones, and iPhones. And, uh, and you can listen easily that way. Bleak House is continuing on the premium subscription feed and will be continuing for the near future. We're almost halfway through. I think we are about halfway through the book right now. So Bleak House will go on for a little while, at least through the summer. And then, uh, and then we'll go on to something else. I have a few ideas up my sleeve. I hope you've had a marvelous end of 2013 and beginning of 2014. And I will talk to you in about a month. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or post a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via Stitcher Radio, craftlet.com, just-the-books.com, or via our Android, our new Windows 8, or iPhone app. You can also use the free Craftlet app to access premium subscriber content. Just the books and Craftlet are made possible by the support of our listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, 